Hi, good afternoon. Um, thanks so much for joining us. I'm Courtney Freer. I'm Assistant Professorial Research Fellow at LSE's Middle East Center uh, and really happy to be chairing today the event about reforming the Gulf Frontier State, uh, quite a timely discussion. Um, so Stefan Hartog will speak for about uh, 25 minutes um, or so. And then we have uh, Dr. Yusuf Ali Ibrahim, who will be responding for about five to 10 minutes. Uh, and then we'll have the opportunity for everyone to submit questions. Um, if you want to submit a question or a comment, you can use the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen. And then I'll go ahead and address those to the speakers. Um, the event is also being recorded and will be live streamed on Facebook. Um, and if you want to tweet, you can use the hashtags LSE Kuwait or LSE Middle East. Um, so before we get started, I'm gonna go ahead and introduce our speakers briefly. Um, Dr. Stefan Hertog is Associate Professor in Comparative Politics in the Department of Government at LSE. He joined the government department in 2010 as a lecturer and previously served as Kuwait Professor at Sciences Po Paris, lecturer in political economy at Durham and postdoctoral research fellow at Princeton. Uh, he holds an MA from the University of Bonn and MSc from SOAS and a DPhil from Oxford. And today Stefan will be drawing on his Kuwait program research, uh, the results of which appear in his July 2020 research paper, Reforming Wealth Distribution in Kuwait, estimating costs and impacts. Um, and I'll go ahead and put that link, the link for that paper in the chat box so everyone can uh, take a look. Um, Dr. Yusuf Ali Ibrahim is a member of the board of directors of the Arab Gulf States, States Institute in Washington, the chairman of Investcor, and a member of the board of the Kuwait Foundation for the Advancement of Sciences. He has served as Kuwait's Minister of Finance, Minister of Planning, Minister of State for Administrative Development Affairs, and Minister of Education and Higher Education. Um, he has also served as the Dean of the School of Business at Kuwait University and held the post of Cultural Counselor Director at the Cultural Division of the Embassy of the State of Kuwait in Washington, D.C. Um, Dr. Yusuf also has a PhD in Economics from Claremont Graduate University and has authored a number of publications, reports, research papers, and books. Um, so they are both much better versed to talk about this issue than I am. So I'll go ahead and hand it over to uh, Stefan. Great. Uh, thanks very much, Courtney. Uh, first of all, I should uh, thank the Kuwait program and the Kuwait Foundation for the Advancement of Sciences uh, and also the Kuwait Public Policy Center that's attached to the Supreme Council for Planning in Kuwait for facilitating this research. And it's actually not just a formality because the, uh, the center has been really instrumental in facilitating uh, this research. And I think it's quite unique across the whole Gulf region that a government body would be willing to support and to buy into policy research of that kind, which uh, you know, it's not only public policy, but it's also uh, political economy research. So I think that that's a really great thing that makes Kuwait stand out uh, in the region. Uh, and I should also issue a health warning that uh, the, the report's quite detailed. So it's got 25,000 words, uh, something like 60 or 70 pages. So I'm trying to compress that into 20 to 25 minutes and I might not completely succeed. There's also a, a very compressed op-ed version that I wrote for Project Syndicate a couple of months ago. Uh, so we can perhaps also send this out after, uh, after the talk. Uh, so the, the paper itself uh, looks at how to reform wealth distribution. Uh, so the way that the government essentially shares uh, its oil rents with the population on the case of Kuwait. But the argument that I'm going to make today conceptually is going to apply to all of the GCC countries. Uh, so you know, also in the Q&A, I invite everyone to also relate what I'm saying to other cases in the region. Uh, it's just that some of the simulations, some of the specific numbers that uh, I've come up with in the paper, they're all based on Kuwaiti data and they reflect the specific Kuwaiti situation. Some of the policies that I propose 
uh, would need to be tweaked, especially in countries with relatively lower oil income per capita, like Bahrain, Oman, and Saudi Arabia. But I think the basic logic of what I'm about to tell you is sort of the same. Um, so the, the point of departure for my argument and for the paper is that uh, the GCC monarchies, they face inevitable political pressures to share a good share of their wealth with, with the citizens. And I think they inevitably have to distribute some money in some way. The question is not uh, whether they should distribute at all or not. The question rather is how they should distribute money. I think that's you know, just um, a, a, a recognition of the actual political constraints that, uh, that, that affect governments all across the region. Um, and you know, depending on which political philosopher you believe in, uh, there's also moral and philosophical arguments for sharing some of the natural wealth with the resident citizen population. Uh, the, the issue currently is, I think, not so much the fact that wealth is shared, but the channels through which wealth is shared, which are very uh, economically distortionary, which are fiscally unsustainable, uh, which are very inequitable because it's often richer households that benefit more from the way the money is shared. Uh, and so we have to think about how to reform uh, this wealth sharing regime in a way that's more sustainable, particularly in light of the current uh, low oil price and fiscal deficits across the region, and that's less economically distortionary, that in particular gives stronger incentives for citizens to be active in the private sector economically, because the current incentive set is such that nationals are priced out of the private sector as employees, uh, and they often have an incentive to just wait for a job in the government sector, and thereby they're kind of taken out of the productive circuit of their national economies. Uh, the, the two key channels of the current wealth sharing regime all across the region are actually not conventional welfare policies like uh, unemployment insurance or uh, income supplements for working families. Uh, those exist, but they're very, very small in comparison to the overall uh, scale of wealth sharing. Most of the wealth sharing happens, first of all, through energy subsidies, which are still significant, although they've been pared down across the region still a few percentage points per GDP. The, the, the uh, subsidy budgets are sometimes uh, as large as major government items like, uh, or are larger than total welfare spending, uh, almost as large as uh, health spending. Uh, so that's one very significant way through which wealth is shared, but it is very, very inefficient and distortionary. And the other even more important, even more distortionary one is that historically citizens have been elemented, have been supported by the state through the provision of public sector jobs, which wasn't that much of an issue when populations were small, uh, but nowadays has become a, a big economic fiscal sustainability issue all across the region. And um, among the three high rent countries in the region, so it's Kuwait, Qatar and the United Arab Emirates, it's probably the most acute in Kuwait because they're such a large share of the national budget just goes to uh, government employees' salaries and benefits. Uh, and again, I make an argument that this is a very distortionary and quite unfair way of sharing wealth and that we have to think about uh, other wealth sharing tools, other welfare tools that can at least partially uh, displace that. Uh, so the way that wealth should ideally be shared would um, be giving incentives or at least giving uh, less disincentives not to join the private sector to nationals. It should be fiscally more sustainable. It should be transparent and it should be fair. And the current regime really is uh, none of those things. <clears throat> and uh, ideally, the new system should be designed in a way 
that uh, makes it politically easier, that can be used as a quid pro quo to in return gradually shrink public sector employment and in return more quickly adjust energy subsidies. So uh, that way it could be fiscally neutral or even fiscally positive. And uh, the big idea that I'm proposing in the paper is uh, not a new idea in the global context, but it hasn't really been discussed much in the Gulf context, and that is a universal basic income. So basic cash grant that all citizens or at least all adult citizens who are not already employed in the government sector are entitled to. Uh, and uh, the exclusion of employees in the government sector is because implicitly they already get sort of a demo grant. They already have sort of an implicit subsidy uh, or welfare component uh, in the salaries that they receive. And what we want to do is to level the playing field between people who join the government sector and people who are outside of it and in return, also make it easier to, to shrink the government sector. Uh, so what uh, the paper does, and what I'll briefly do today, is to show how energy subsidies reform, energy subsidy reforms could uh, finance this kind of universal basic income uh, in a fiscally neutral way, how large this basic income would be for citizens and for, uh, for children also, where there would be a reduced grant that would be going to parents. Um, and what the distributional consequences would be. So who would be the winners, who would be the losers uh, among households, and uh, how would inequality of income distribution be affected? And I do all of this with Kuwaiti data, but the same could be done in principle with data from other GCC countries, at least where that's available. And as mentioned, I can only scratch the surface. So there's the whole 25,000 word report that you can, uh, you can enjoy at your own leisure. Um, so, um, I quickly try to share just a few slides to give you a, a very quick overview uh, of um, the current status quo of wealth sharing in the GCC uh, and in Kuwait in particular. Um, I hope everyone is seeing that. Um, okay, that's great. Uh, so the fact that so much wealth is shared through water and energy subsidies uh, has resulted, among other things, in, in rampant consumption growth. So uh, here you see the growth of water consumption in Kuwait. Water is desalinated, so that is energy intensive and costly to produce. And you see that uh, the growth is far above population growth. And this is mostly because water and also electricity, which is uh, shown on the next slide here, are given away for very, very cheap, especially to uh, households in single uh, dwelling uh, real estate units. and uh, that really uh, isn't providing a lot of utility. It really isn't providing a lot of benefit to the national population. Uh, the benefit of that is marginal, but the opportunity cost in terms of the, the oil that's used in producing uh, that energy and water, the, the gas that's used in producing uh, those utility services are very, very considerable. So the fiscal loss of burning the energy domestically rather than exporting it or using it for industrial purposes is very, very large. Uh, and it's a growing problem, so it's becoming larger. Um, now, uh, here is a graph for the whole GCC that shows the distribution of employment for uh, the six countries across the public sector and the private sector, uh, breaking it down into nationals and expatriates. And you see, you know, without having to look at those bars in detail, that generally nationals tend to be employed in the public sector. So this is part of that social contract where historically those governments uh, virtually guaranteed a job uh, in government to their citizens, and the private sector is dominated by expatriates. Um, 
And uh, even when nationals join the private sector, and you see that in the graph here, they tend to have a, a lower overall income than the public sector. This is uh, both because the public sector salaries are quite generous, and it is because in the private sector, they have to compete with uh, low-income expatriates, which in a sense is an unfair competition because any rich country, if it opened its labor market to uh, low-cost, low-skilled migrants from uh, all around the world, from South Asia, uh, you'd have the bottom fallout of uh, the labor price. So it's very, very hard for nationals, not only in Kuwait, but in the whole GCC to compete, especially in the low to mid-skilled segment of the labor market. And at the same time, citizens are drawn to the public sector where benefits, work conditions, and salaries are very attractive because that's part of the local social contract. As a result, you have pretty few nationals in uh, the private sector across the whole region, at least in international comparison. Um, and here you see that uh, the gap in wages in the private sector because uh, between nationals and expatriates is uh, general. So it cuts across all education, all skill levels, but uh, proportionally speaking, it's the largest in the lower skilled segment. So uh, for people with primary and below intermediate and secondary school, the Kuwaiti wage is a larger multiple of the average expat wage uh, than in the higher skilled segments. So it's in those areas in particular where nationals are uncompetitive price-wise and where arguably we have to do something about the wealth sharing system that somehow narrows or potentially even uh, closes this gap. Uh, and uh, all the argument is not just about you know how the world should be uh, in in an ideal state, and uh, we we could in reality continue forever with the current regime. But the current regime is actually very substantially fiscally unsustainable across the whole region. Uh, it's more acute in Bahrain, Oman, to some extent Saudi Arabia, but uh, also in Kuwait and even in the UAE and Qatar. If you extrapolate demographic figures. Uh, into the next decades, if you extrapolate oil income figures, you'll see that at some point, the current wealth sharing regime, the current social contract based around uh, guaranteed public employment for everyone is going to break down. Um, you see here with Kuwaiti figures that the share of compensation of employees, so that's um, wages in the public sector, uh, as total as a share of total government spending has been going up very significantly. Uh, and it's really starting to break the bank and it's really crowding out all other forms of spending, including developmental spending on uh, capital expenditure. Great. So uh, I'll go back to the slides in a moment. For uh, for now, I'll, I'll just quickly uh, I'll quickly unshare um, and um, then tell you uh, very quickly about sort of the general rationale of a universal basic income and why it is a good fit for Gulf oil monarchies in particular. Uh, a better fit than pretty much all other countries uh, all around the world. So that, there's a couple of uh, counter arguments against universal basic income schemes that, that are usually made in the context of rich OECD countries where the, the debate around those uh, benefits has become pretty lively. Uh, and uh, am, am I still showing okay? Because I'm not sure my internet connection is, is okay. I could move to a tether on the phone. Oh, it's still okay. Okay, because uh, Courtney is looking a bit... Uh, Pixelated. Um, okay, great. So uh, the, the general counter arguments to universal basic income schemes really come from a different context. So they come from uh, countries where a UBI would have to be financed through taxes, 
So you'd have a tax, tax penalty. It would be politically difficult to introduce those taxes. It would create potential, potential equity issues. Why should some people pay taxes for other people who are potentially idle to just get free cash? Uh, that argument really doesn't apply in the GCC context because we would finance the UBI out of a reform of the current wealth distribution system. No one would need to be taxed. It's just a different way of sharing wealth than the current one. Um, there's also the argument that it creates disincentives to work. You know, it's going to make people uh, lazier. That's what economists call an income effect. People will be uh, less interested in becoming economically active. And again, that is a potential argument in countries where uh, you don't have a public sector job guarantee and where people usually have to go out to the private sector and find jobs. There, although it has sort of a welfare and an income security effect, it could also have a slight dampening effect on uh, work effort. In the GCC, if we introduce a UVI and in return stop or strongly reduce government employment, the incentive effect would be the opposite. Government employment wouldn't be easily available anymore. And instead, citizens would have uh, income to back up, to top up the incomes that they can generate in the private sector. So compared to the status quo of often idle government employment, a UBI that would actually bridge the gap of incomes in the private sector and uh, allow people to have an overall income where they combine relatively low private sector wages and the UBI to reach sort of a reasonable middle class income, that would actually have much stronger incentives for people to, to join the private sector and, and to become economically active. Of course, you have to be careful not to pitch the UBI at a level that's too convenient. You know, if you give everyone a UBI of 1,200 or 1,500 KD, then you might indeed have a problem of a lot of people sitting at home and doing nothing. But if you pitch it at a level where you, know, you can survive, but it's not, you won't have a convenient life. At the same time, you're not easily able to get a government job anymore. Then, you know, in that kind of Goldilocks zone, you would provide exactly the right incentive for people to seek private sector jobs and to be competitive also with expats on a relatively uh, low wage level while still, still having a good overall income because it would work almost a bit like a, like a wage subsidy. And a different from conventional welfare policies where uh, you get unemployment grants or unemployment insurance, uh, or you get a top-up if you're a low earner, the incentive advantage of the UBI is that it doesn't get taxed away. So you're not in a welfare trap. With co conventional welfare mechanisms, and that's been very prominent sort of in the US welfare debate, the problem is that as soon as you find a job and you earn better, you start losing your welfare benefits. And that is equivalent to being taxed, right? The more you earn, the less kind of supplementary benefits you get. And that's a disincentive because you lose the welfare. So effectively, you don't gain much more in net terms uh, by working harder and earning more. With the UBI, you don't have that kind of taxation uh, uh, effect. You would get a UBI at any level. So you don't lose any of the welfare benefits if you kind of work harder and generate a stronger private income for yourself. So those are the kind of conceptual uh, arguments. Although in practice, we could combine a UBI also with other uh, means-tested welfare mechanisms with something like a negative income tax that provides some extra support to low earners in the private sector, for example. So the two are not mutually exclusive. Uh, I've just laid out the sort of advantages of a, of a pure UBI system. In countries that are very fiscally constrained, like Bahrain, Oman, and Saudi Arabia, there might have to be actually more means testing, more targeted welfare and relatively less general benefits. Even if general benefits are sort of politically and socially 
perhaps the first preference. The fiscal constraints there are so strong that probably those governments have to be uh, more selective. But in Kuwait, Qatar, UAE, I think the, the numbers work out so that we could provide a reasonably generous general UBI for all adult citizens. Uh, okay, so the, the basic idea would be to, uh, in the short run, replace energy subsidies, you know, move energy prices to what are considered international levels, uh, and then use the savings, use the extra income from that to uh, produce this kind of demogram, this UBI for all adult citizens. Uh, and uh, I can quickly show you uh, a, a slide again, uh, which shows you roughly how that would work out in the short run in the Kuwaiti context. So I've, I've done that using a range of uh, fiscal, utility price, and subsidy data, uh, and then map that onto the current Kuwaiti population structure. So there are two different ways that you could distribute uh, the money that is generated from energy subsidy reform. Uh, the first is that you pay a universal cash grant, UCG as I call it here, you can also call it UBI, uh, and you just give it to all Kuwaitis. Uh, if you did that, then uh, the monthly grant would be a bit above 110 KD. So this would be the energy subsidy savings reallocated to all citizens. Um, you could also differentiate between adults and children, which is reasonable because you probably don't want to uh, pursue a very pro-natalist policy where people get a lot of money for having children. Uh, so instead, you could have adults getting twice as much as children, and the money for children would go through their parents or carers, in which case you would have 140 KD per month per adult and 70 KD uh, per child per month. Now, as I mentioned before, if you do this generally and also give it to government employees, uh, you kind of reproduce the same economic distortions that you had before, because we argue that government employees implicitly already receive a subsidy. They're, they already are part of a social contract where they get some wealth sharing that people outside of the government sector don't get. So uh, what I would propose instead is that government employees get a very small demo grant, a very small UBI that only compensates them for the cost of the extra utility, for the cost of the more expensive electricity and water in particular. Uh, and that would be, according to my calculations, you know, looking at household uh, consumption survey data, that would be 60 KD a month. So then most government employees would uh, neither benefit nor would they be harmed. You know, they would have to pay a bit more for utility, but they would also get a bit more cash. Uh, importantly, other adults outside of the government sector, and that, that's citizens only, they would get 212 KD a month. Now, obviously, it's not enough in Kuwait to have uh, any kind of decent life, but it would get them some way towards, uh, it would get us some way towards bridging, first of all, the income, the wage gap between the public sector and the private sector, because you would get that money only in the private sector. So you would, could think of it as a kind of top up that brings you closer to the wages in the government sector. And uh, it would also potentially allow Kuwaitis to drop their reservation wages a little bit, ask for slightly slower wages in the private sector and thereby become more competitive with foreigners. Now, that number by itself is not enough to fix all of those problems. It would just be sort of directionally uh, useful to slightly narrow the gap to the public sector, slightly narrow the cost gap uh, to expatriate employees, and thereby make it easier to employ Kuwaitis in the private sector. But what we could also do, and that would be the other important part of this UBI reform, would be to uh, stop or very drastically reduce net hiring 
in the public sector and use the savings from that over time to top up the UBI. And if you were able to reduce the public payroll by just 10%, which is not that much, you know, it's a couple of people leaving the system, a couple of people getting pensioned off, uh, then you could double the, this UBI to more than 400 KD a month. And with 400 KD a month, you pretty much have the gap between public and private uh, average wages covered. And you're at a level of sort of basic social security where people are not going to starve. Obviously, it's not a convenient income. And the UBI isn't meant to be convenient. It isn't meant to allow people to just sit at home and play PlayStation. But it is meant as sort of a supplement that together with what people can earn in the private sector gets them to a decent, to a socially acceptable income. And when they lose their jobs, they still have this basic income security so they don't fall into a complete hole. And how could we get to this 10% reduction of the public sector payroll? Well, there would be a couple of different mechanisms. Um, most uh, easily, some of the people who are currently employed in government don't necessarily want to be employed in government. Anecdotally, and based on a, on a small survey that the KPPC has done, especially a lot of women in the government sector would actually be happy to leave the government sector and instead be homemakers or be micro-entrepreneurs or be active on the private labor market if they got the UBI in return. So there would be some natural um, leakage some natural erosion of government employment by people who choose to leave government and instead take the UBI. And if they can get one of 400 KD, that's something that could happen to you know, some significant share of the public sector. We're actually just doing a follow-up project. Christian Schuster from UCL and I are doing a number of surveys and survey experiments uh, to figure out who in the public sector would leave the public sector if they got the UBI, because you don't want all the top people to leave. You, know, you want you know, ideally the people to leave who are not that productive uh, and how many of them would leave. And then on the basis of that, we could make an estimate of how large the savings would be fiscally and how much this could be used both to plug the fiscal deficit uh, and to finance a higher UBI. And if no one wants to leave, then you can still think of creative solutions like a golden handshake, you know, where people get a temp, get a, a one-off cash payment for leaving the government sector. Sometimes that has a strong kind of psychological incentive mechanism. And you can sort of fine-tune that over time to get your public sector to a size where it's fiscally sustainable and where the savings are large enough to finance a significant UBI for, uh, for people, for citizens outside of government employment. Now, this is just... Speaking about national averages, what happens distributionally across households uh, and across the Kuwaiti population? Um, now, I won't walk through this table in any detail. I just summarize for you verbally that, generally speaking, poorer households, so households on lower incomes, benefit disproportionately. But also rich households, so also households on the very right side of the column, this is all data uh, this is all based on data from the uh, last publicly available Kuwaiti household consumption survey. Even rich households have a small net gain from uh, the conversion of utility subsidies to direct cash grants. Uh, but it is the low-income households, particularly the ones that have uh, no one uh, in government employment among their household members, that benefit. So they would have an annual net gain in the best case of 1,500 KD. Um, which, you know, it's not gigantic, but given that those are low-income households, is, uh, it does make a difference. Politically speaking, the more important finding is that everyone gains. 
So it's sort of what economists call a Pareto optimal scenario. No one on the basis of their pure distributional interests would have any reason to uh, refuse this kind of reform because everyone's a net uh, beneficiary. There are, of course, uh, some categories that would lose on the margin from high utility prices. One is expatriate households, but those have very small average utility uh, bills. So the impact would be relatively small. It would just be important to enforce things like uh, the official minimum wage consistently to make sure that there's no energy poverty. And the private sector would have to pay slightly higher uh, energy prices in its uh, production, particularly in industry. But I ran simulation based on establishment survey data and the impact of that on uh, the total cost of inputs of those sectors and total gross value added of those sectors is, is fairly negligible. And it's probably going to be, it's very likely going to be offset by the additional consumption boost uh, that you'll give by uh, handing extra money to poorer households. So especially consumer facing industries will actually benefit from this kind of reform. Um, and I think I'm uh, approaching very much the end of my time. Uh, so I'll keep some of the detail for the discussion uh, and uh, just show you very briefly that uh, if we assume that we can over time erode the total size of the public sector by 30%, uh, so that over time, uh, relative to business as usual scenario, where the public sector continues to grow uh, and where almost no one leaves the public sector, we would get Kuwait on a fiscally sustainable path for at least the next 20 years. Uh, in the very long run, we could think about solutions like financing uh, the UBI out of uh, revenues from overseas investments, for example. Um, so it would buy Kuwait in particular a lot of time uh, to economically diversify, create uh, non-oil sources of revenue. And at the same time, it'd be a system that would be more socially inclusive, more transparent, uh, more equitable, uh, and much more beneficial to private-driven diversification because uh, citizens would have much strong incentives to be active economically in the private sector. So I think uh, I'll stop right here. Perhaps in the Q&A, we can take up uh, the extent to which those ideas are applicable also to other GCC countries. So conceptually, this is all for uh, any kind of high-rent country. It's just that the numbers I used were based on the paper where I used uh, primary data from, from Kuwait in particular. Um, well, thanks for listening in, and I'll stop sharing right here. Thanks, Stefan. Um, now we'll turn it over to um, Dr. Yusuf Al Ibrahim for his comments. Courtney, thank you very much. Uh, hello, everybody, and uh, uh, it's a pleasure to come back to academia and, and participate. Uh, and, and such a very important topic. Uh, Stephen did cover all bases in his uh, superb analysis of current rent distribution system in Kuwait, which is, I believe, outdated, inefficient, inequitable, and economically distortive and unsustainable. Uh, a recent study showed that a 35-year-old Kuwaiti male received a total of more than 300,000 KD of government support since his birth. On the other hand, energy consumption has doubled in less than 20 years and wages and salaries bill more than doubled in the last decade. 
that led not only to increase in government expenditure by more than fivefold in the last 20 years, but also to inadequate consumption and production behavior among citizens and businesses, resulted in economic, social, and political imbalances. Despite poor and unavailable data, Dr. Hertog developed an interesting and well thought of linkage between energy subsidies, government employment, and social safety net by providing unconditional cash grant, UCG, to citizens under different scenarios. Its goal is rationalizing utility consumption, encouraging Kuwaitis to move out of the government employment and reforming the existing SSN. He argued that this method is going to be politically and socially acceptable as all Kuwaitis are going to be in a win-win situation for a long term. Although the subject of this research is timely important for Kuwait and the region, due to the substantial decline in oil revenue and the economic consequences of COVID-19. With new leadership in Kuwait, a new national assembly and a new government. But unfortunately, there are no signs that issues of reforming the subsidy system, economic reform and reducing budget deficit are on the top of the national agenda of all concerned parties. Examples are the new budget for next year, 21-22, with a deficit of 20, uh, 12 billion KD estimated deficit. And the declared priorities list of the new elected uh, members of the National Assembly. In brief, I would like to raise few observations and give some suggestions, if you allow me, Mr. Uh, the first, the assumption of the starting point of 1.8 billion KD of savings on energy subsidies and to redistribute this amount, maybe more under different scenarios and over time to all citizens, regardless of their level of consumption or income. My concern here is that the amount required for this program will surpass the number within no time for several reasons. One is the demands of members of the National Assembly to increase the proposed amount or limit, maybe now or in the near future, such as with uh, their demands for other subsidies. For example, last week, they are asking to increase child allowances from 50 KD to 70 or 80 KD a month. The second is citizens' purchasing power might erode due to inflation resulted from increasing costs of energy inputs or imported inflation. And third is the increasing growth rate of eligible citizens due to the young population pyramid. My second observation is the, the process to implement this method and to achieve its full result is a long-term process. Whereas the budget deficit gap is widening very fast. Now it's like, 1 billion KD a month. And sources of financing this deficit is dwindling. This situation might affect the efficiency and the validity of this program. 
The third, even though I appreciate the importance of the two main subsidy program, energy and public employment, but the question is, is it politically viable to differentiate the amount of the cash grant between public and private employment? Especially most of the voters are public sector employees. My fourth point is the UCG approach is not tested in any other country in the region in a full swing as it's proposed in this paper. As you know, Iran was a big failure. Saudi Arabia is a means a tested program. It's not UCG. Uh, Jordan didn't uh, fully succeed. So there are none accounted for variables might increase the risk for to succeed and open the floor for criticism, given the high ceiling of freedom of expression in Kuwait. The fourth is one might suggest, maybe it's better to start first with the energy subsidy scheme by giving households certain lower amount of cash. This is to ensure the success of the program as it is more straightforward and has clear targets. Where the public employment and streamlining the social safety net are more complex and might have a strong political headwind to be implemented. It can be introduced later with a higher UCG levels. The fifth is to ensure the success of such program or any other program. Government needs to encourage an open national dialogue on the current welfare system and its sustainability. This involving NGOs, civic society, which are thriving in Kuwait, or such as the 29 faculty members who recently wrote before it's too late, Qabla Fawat al-Awan, Ashal Consulting Firm and others. This kind of independent and credible views are very important to help in convincing the public the need to change the status quo. Also articulating a well-organized public awareness campaign to send a clear message to the public, as well as utilizing the nudge unit that was established in the General Secretariat of the Supreme Council is very crucial. The sixth is based on that dialogue that the government should create. Maybe we start this program with a small sample of beneficiaries and for a limited time, this will give some assurance to succeed and to convince the public of its benefits. Usually when you start any subsidies program, it will be politically very difficult to cancel it. There are uh, many prerequisites to such program, maybe out of the scope of this research or any other economic reform program in order to succeed. The first is to deal with the issue, especially in Kuwait, of corruption and government overspending and waste. This issue is making a lot of political noise and cloud. The second is we must reform the government sector in order to increase its efficiency. And I don't want to go in detail. There is, we just finished a new study by the Higher Council for Planning and Development uh, on this subject. Also the need to reform the labor market. For example, to deal with the infinite supply of foreign labor, especially the low skilled, low cost, as you just mentioned, Stephen. 
and the cost of schedule wages that government is incurring through a blanket subsidies as the uh, subsidy system now. And also to get rid of fake hiring of Kuwaitis in the private sector to achieve uh, unknown goals uh, to increase the number of Kuwaitis in the private sector. Another prerequisite is an urgent need to launch the privatization program in different economic sectors. Before or simultaneously with this subsidies reform to ensure there is a strong demand for national employment. The current private sector economic activities wouldn't be able to absorb the flow of uh, national labor force. And also some of the proceeds of this privatization program could be used in financing the reform of the welfare program. Also the need to upgrade and enhance the education system and the training programs. Another prerequisite is the need to change and upgrade the civil service rules. The current incentives for working in the government are more than a high salary, short working hours, accountability, and other. I doubt that a higher amount of UCG will incentivize young Kuwaitis to migrate to the private sector unless new rules and systems are introduced. In conclusion, I'm, I'm looking forward to see the implementation of such credible research that will help Kuwait in taking a sustainable economic development path. And thank you very much. Fantastic, thank you so much. Um, you touched on a lot of issues that have come up in the, the Q&A um, already, especially about kind of the political aspect um, of, of implementing something like this, as well as um, inflation is another thing that was mentioned. Um, Stefan, did you want to make any preliminary um, responses? Uh, perhaps I quickly run through some of the points and then perhaps that covers uh, some of the Q&A material. Th thanks so much, Yusuf. Those, those are very valid and important points. And obviously, uh, to get Kuwait to fiscal sustainability and on an economic diversification path, a lot of complementary reforms have to happen, including on the labor market. So something also has to happen probably to make low-skilled, low-cost foreign labor less easily available or, or a little bit more costly to employers to narrow the sort of the cost gap from both sides. Um, on inflation, very quickly, there are simulations in the paper and the overall impact should be to the tune of perhaps half a percentage point. So it's very, very small. So it would be a, a small fraction only of that you would lose in terms of real purchasing power compared to the cash that you get. So it, it's um, it's pretty uh, insignificant, much less significant than other inflationary shocks we've had in, in last years. Um, so in the long-term scenarios that, that I showed until the 2030s, so demography is uh, is built in there. So the, the growth of the citizen population, which is why by the 2030s, again, you would at some point run into sustainability issues, but it would buy you a lot more time to diversify the economy and to generate uh, non-oil forms of, of income and, and government revenue. Um, and uh, it's true that differentiating between civil uh, service employees and private uh, individuals is a political challenge. So we have to think about how to package that. Uh, I mean, in, in economically rational terms, no one loses. So you know, at least it's not about taking away from government employees and giving it to someone else. Uh, possibly we, we would need to set up two separate grants uh, and uh, you know, give the kind of 
subsidy uh, compensation grant to everyone and then just an extra separate grant for people outside of the uh, outside of the government sector um, that's not framed as a subsidy compensation grant because it wouldn't be you know that the 60 kd for everyone that would cover the extra cost of the subsidies and then that's just an extra grant for people who are not uh, within government just like you know the damalamala is something that only people in the private sector get and people in government don't get. Um, but I fully agree that, you know, it would be great to do a field trial on that. Um, and also we are currently trying to do more survey work to get a sense of people's reactions and how much they would uh, support that. Because in the end, everyone wants more all of the time. That's gonna be the constraint for any kind of reform. And I think this reform is the one where there are comparatively speaking, the least losers. You know, it should be comparatively speaking, politically easier than other reforms like you know, unilaterally reducing government employment uh, or um, privatizing where you know, the, the employees and the privatized entities might then see their jobs at risk. Uh, so again, I think I build a more of a quid pro quo and a compensation mechanism to make it politically palatable than in, in, in most other reform proposals that I've seen. But I'll stop right here and we can perhaps take some question but th those are all good points that we'll have to look at both through further political discussions you know i think there needs to be a long public debate about this so people understand the rationale and their spy in and there has to be a lot more research i wouldn't be comfortable at all with rolling that out tomorrow and being confident that it's going to work out great um so we have quite a few questions um a couple of them seem to revolve around some similar issues i'm going to start with kind of two sets of questions um the first concerns something you've already addressed a bit but the the issue of political will um in mm -hmm. and, and the the political difficulty of of implementing a, a policy like this um so one question asks does the the ruling is the ruling family willing to face political potential uh, political reactions to to a change like this um, another asks actually if um, if there have been debates in Parliament about um, UBI or use, like uh, about um, changing. I mean, obviously there have been uh, debates about subsidy reduction, but to what extent is there a national conversation about something um, like UBI? Um, and so I guess that's kind of on the the political mm -hmm. side. Like, how far are we uh, in Kuwait? Um, and then the the second kind of another cluster that I've noticed is. This question about um, how, how do you incentivize beyond money um, people to, to move to the private sector? So the, the issue of uh, prestige, the idea that a public sector job comes with a certain kind of uh, social capital. So how would you kind of how, how can you incentivize people mm. other than through money? Because already there is the Dama La Mala, which you mentioned the, the, the grant to nationals working in the private sector, but it hasn't led to people flocking to the private sector. So then how do you how do you incentivize beyond beyond hmm. the financial? Um, so I guess we can start with those. Uh, so on the politics, I mean, that's above my pay grade. You know, if, if no one wants it at the top level, there's nothing I can do. <laughs> but but uh, I, I do think that, you know, if there is a will to address the fiscal challenges, then uh, I think we have to think about a package which has the least losers. Right. Anything more stringent where people have money essentially taken out of their pockets is going to be, uh, it's not going to fly. So we have to think about something that shapes, shapes the distribution regime without creating a significant, potentially well-organized segment of losers. And, and that, that was the main political rationale behind the, the UBI idea. And that's why I think it's politically more attractive than a means-tested system. 
Uh, and even in Saudi Arabia, the means-tested citizens account that was introduced uh, in return for subsidy price increase a few years ago that, that Yusuf just uh, mentioned, uh, the, the means-testing is very generous, like 70 or 80% of households get something, and it's not very rigorously done. So it's pretty close, actually, to an almost universal system. Um, but I, I think, you know, I, I can't conjure up political will, but if, if there's some will in the face of the fiscal challenges, then this is probably one of the most politically defensible options because you actually have a lot of winners and you could organize those winners. You know, you could build a constituency among young Kuwaitis who are job seekers, who don't have necessarily a government job guaranteed, particularly young women who would really benefit from that uh, system. And potentially also from among current government employees who would be happy to leave and take say a 400 KD demo grant instead of doing a, a low income, a relatively low income, low effort job. But we have to find out empirically through survey work how many of those there are. And once we found them, we'll organize them. Um, so uh, yeah, a lot of unknowns there. And uh, there hasn't been a lot of public debate about this yet, but there's been recently one uh, thought piece by a Kuwaiti banker whose name I can't recall on the idea of a universal cash grant, which is very encouraging. And also when I put out my, my op-ed and project syndicate, uh, there, there was got tweeted around quite a bit, it was translated into Arabic, so it created quite a bit of debate in the region, which is the first time that I saw that kind of reform being debated publicly rather than among just a few experts. Uh, on the prestige, I actually don't think that's as much of an issue in Kuwait as in some other countries. I know that in the Emirates, government employment is a lot more prestigious and people want to marry people who, are, who have a government job rather than a private sector job. I think perhaps because of sort of the longer tradition of a merchant activity or for some other reason. I don't think private sector jobs are that stigmatized in Kuwait. Um, so I, I think if the incentives are right, people will tend to take them. And in the initial phase of the Damalamala, the uptake actually was quite good. It's just that then the government decided to hike public sector salaries by 50% or more. And then of course that pulled the rug from under the, the Damalamala uh, policy. But I do think that just with pure economic incentives, we can probably get somewhere. And I also think that all across the region, the younger generation is a bit more entrepreneurial and a bit more willing to consider private sector employment under the right circumstances. Dr. Yusuf, did you want to add anything on, on those topics? Um, that would, yeah. Uh, no, I, I just, you know, I, I, I agree with Stephen. You know, this social status of, of being a government employee, it, it depends on, on the level of education and the job you are having. And, and, uh, but I want to go back for the, the political will. Uh, you know, I believe the, the civic society, if they move in, in a, a coordinated uh, way, I think they can affect both the parliament and the government, but and also you know the oil prices. I'm I'm not very happy with the oil prices these days. Of Kuwaiti oil reached uh, sixty four dollars per barrel, but when it was around nineteen, uh, it really created uh, a lot of uh, concern uh, within the the leadership of the country. Uh, but the problem is where to start. You know, I mentioned the issue of uh, government spending waste, corruption. So all these things need to be really uh, tackled by the government and and to open dialogue with the rest of the society, not only with the parliament, uh, to show them this is 
this is unsustainable path uh, and, and we need to change it right now. Um, and then I see another kind of cluster of questions uh, relating to kind of how this model could potentially work outside of Kuwait. Um, so one question about Saudi Arabia in particular, do you think reducing benefits from government employees is plausible, especially in Saudi? Um, and another question about, yeah, if, if you've looked at other rentier oil producers, Iraq is mentioned. Um, there's also a question about kind of problems with the Iranian model because uh, Dr. Yusuf had mentioned that. Um, so basically kind of how, how, how would this model potentially work elsewhere? I know you haven't done the, the research, the same research mm -hmm. in, in other countries, but I mean, if you were looking at kind of across the GCC, I think, where would you think this would be likeliest to, to take hold? And, and also, I mean, in terms of political will, but also, I guess, administrative capacity. Um, I mean, and also does it, does it help that Kuwait has a parliament that where, because you mm -hmm. can discuss these issues more openly um, and get a sense of public opinion or, or not? Um, um, great. Yeah. Uh, so uh, first, uh, by way of clarification, I, I don't propose to take away anything from incumbent civil servants because that's touching the third rail. No, then your proposal is dead. Uh, I, I think w where you can work is with uh, the flow of new labor market entrants and you can make government employment unavailable, less available to them and change their incentive environment so that they do seek a private sector job at a level of income, of total income, you know, UBI plus wages, that is ex acceptable. So even in Saudi Arabia, I wouldn't say, you know, reduce government salaries. Um, I mean, that might have to happen at some point, but that would be sort of a sign of fiscal crisis. Instead, the idea is to make being outside of the government relatively more attractive. So some people will leave government and the government sector in Saudi Arabia is gigantic, it's more than 3 million people. So if you incentive some share of those to leave, that'll be a significant fiscal saving. Um, and uh, to in return, you know, going forward, share wealth not through government jobs, because that's also bad for bureaucratic efficiency, for accountability, for uh, institutional quality, but instead through that kind of direct uh, cash grant, among other mechanisms. Uh, and you, know, you could run the numbers on other countries and probably in Saudi Arabia, uh, you would, uh, obviously the UBI would be less generous, but also wage expectations are lower. Um, and you would probably want to build in a stronger means testing component just because you can't afford to be quite as, uh, quite as generous. So it could be instead of a UBI, it could be a negative income tax like the EITC in the United States, where if you earn below a certain threshold, the government tops up your income. But then as you earn more, this kind of top up is gradually reduced until it disappears. Uh, so then you would uh, bridge in particular the gap for low to mid-skilled workers where the relative differential in costs between expats and nationals is the largest. So high-skilled nationals will always be fine. They'll always find good jobs. The, the biggest relative gap in labor cost uh, is, be is between low to mid-skilled nationals and expatriates. And so in that sense, there's negative income tax would be a complement or a potential alternative because it would help those people in those segments where they're particularly uncompetitive with foreigners, uh, more easily bridge sort of the labor cost gap with foreigners. Um, on Iran, there's this recent econo econometric paper by um, Jawad Salih Esfahani and someone else in the Journal of Development Economics that shows that while the program worked before it fell apart for political reasons, because of infighting between you know, the hardliners and the moderate uh, administration and, and so on and so forth, uh, it actually had very positive economic effects. Um, so uh, it, it failed politically. It didn't fail 
kind of technocratically or, or economically. And there, there are other examples, you know, like the citizens account in Saudi Arabia, which is working fairly well, the demogrant in Alaska, uh, the renta dignidad in Bolivia. I mean, obviously nothing is on the scale of what we would need to properly reform uh, wealth distribution in the GCC countries, because they're quite unique in terms of the per capita oil revenue they have. But directionally, there are other examples that actually have worked rather well. Uh, hence, you know, I think it would be, I mean, I Iraq is just a particularly terrible case of corrupt and inefficient rent distribution with hundreds of thousands of people working in the government as shadow employees, not even existing or not even being alive. Surely converting that to a demogram system would be, would be an improvement. Um, Dr. Yusuf, do you have anything to add on that? Um, okay, so there, uh, we don't have too much time, so I'll just ask um, a couple of questions briefly. Um, one is, how would you address the challenges of shifting into renewable, sustainable energy in Kuwait and the Gulf more broadly, and how can UBI address the climate change um, issue? Um, let's see, um, there's so many good questions. I'm sorry we won't get to, to all of them. Um, a lot of questions about kind of the, basically, again, about the, the issue of, of parliament in Kuwait um, and mm -hmm. kind of how do, you, how do you get kind of political will to... to to implement something like this, especially when you do have low oil prices, um, COVID-19, all of that. I mean, I guess kind of how optimistic are you that, you know, that this is a time actually when when big reforms could be better received than, mm. than at other times. Um, so I'll go ahead and take you answer those. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the parliament hasn't been behaving in very particularly coherent or encouraging ways when it comes to economic reforms. Um, but I, I think the point that Yusuf made about leveraging civil society uh, and you know, appealing to people's enlightened self-interest in terms of every, almost everyone being potentially a beneficiary of the reform provides an opportunity. So it, it, it could be easier to do it sort of in a top-down way in a much more autocratic centralized system like Abu Dhabi or, or Qatar. But on, on the other hand, you can also build much more of a head of steam of people who buy into the project, uh, who, uh, you know, see their own enlightened self-interest and then, and then push it through in, in more of a bottom-up fashion in a, in a context like Kuwait. I mean, that's an optimistic take, but that would be a great thing to see. Um, and on the renewables, uh, I mean, it's really quite separate from what I'm addressing in the paper. Uh, it just adds urgency to reforming the wealth distribution system, right? So, uh, you know, make money out of oil as long as you can, uh, but distribute it in a way that's as fiscally sustainable as possible. Ideally in the long run, converting to a rent distribution system where you have very large overseas investments that then can potentially finance the demo grant. Uh, so you don't need the recurrent oil revenue anymore. Great. Um, Dr. Yusuf, do you have anything to add? Uh, you know, it's, it's uh... I think the National Assembly and the members of the National Assembly will continue uh, to be to work against any economic reform that will affect the welfare system of the uh, the people, especially that the majority are working in the government sector, so they will continue to fight for increase in their salaries, more benefits and also for their social security. If we don't start by privatizing major sectors and major economic activities and make people less dependent on government, then 
the whole political landscape will change. So people that they have interest in the private sector and their small businesses, they will have the say. Look what happened two weeks ago in Kuwait uh, when the government decided to close restaurants, uh, gyms, health clubs. These young Kuwaitis men and women, they went to the street and they started to ask for compensation and why you are closing uh, our businesses. And this led both the parliament and the government uh, to react. Maybe it's not up to their uh, expectation, but at least they have reacted. So again, this is a big advantage in Kuwait. It should be utilized. It's the civic society and the high uh, ceiling of freedom of expression. Fantastic. It's always always good to end on a on a relatively positive, optimistic note, especially in in these times. So, um, thank you so much to both of you. Um, we're we're out of time, but uh, several people have asked if this has been recorded, and it has been. We'll have the recording and hopefully the slides as well um, on on our website, and we've also po uh, po posted into the chat box um, Stefan's long paper as well as his piece for Project Syndicate, um, explaining a little bit more and some of the the graphs from his presentation are in the long paper. Um, so thank you both um, very much. Our next event is on March 9th uh, with Zainab Kaya. We're gonna be talking about female political participation in Kuwait. Um, we have another event on April 21st um, with some of our colleagues from LSE cities talking about uh, public transport and public space in Kuwait. Um, but uh, thank you so much uh, to Stefan and Yusuf and thank you all for, for joining us, so. Thank you very much. Thanks everyone. Thank Thanks Courtney. Thank you, bye-bye. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye-bye.